Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and tonight we're very fortunate to have a good friend of mine and dental colleague, Dr. Grant Dasher, with us to teach on the topic of Romans 9 through 11. Romans 9 through 11 is one of the most difficult parts of Romans, and I think in that way also one of the most difficult and deeply theological aspects of the Bible in general. Uh, There are a lot of different denominations that have been forged from verses that are inside these chapters. Um, I guess I would say as a disclaimer that we will approach this uh, from as objective a point of view as we can. Uh, Certainly uh, both Grant and myself have grown up Church of Christ and have a little bit different opinion maybe than if you're Methodist or Southern Baptist or Catholic. Uh, Whenever that's the case, we do try and uh, talk about that and and offer both sides of this coin. Um, What we would say in general when we get to these sort of theological topics that not everyone agrees on is that there are certain primary doctrines and even secondary doctrines that we pretty much mostly agree with. And some of my favorite preachers are uh, Reformed Calvinists or Calvinists. um, And so it's not sort of an emblematic thing to say, well, just because I feel this way, I don't agree with this person. Uh, So there's your disclaimer. So please uh, understand as we say these things, uh, that is the the lens through which we view these passages, that yes, they're important, uh, but it doesn't change that the most important thing are things like that God created the world, that Jesus came and died and resurrected, and that he offers salvation for us. Uh, Those are things that are primary in their nature. So um, I've already taken too much of Grant's time. Let's go ahead and jump in with Grant Dasher on Romans chapters 9 through 11. Yeah, and I'll say like uh, all of my favorite preachers I would disagree with on, on this like one issue, um, but they're still like my favorite preachers and I think David and Kyle are the same way. So, um, so I you know don't ever want any, I, this is certainly not an issue that I think should be divisive, but it, it um, like this chapter in particular, chapter nine in particular, has been an issue that's like it's been uh, pretty divisive in the church in the church's history. So that being said, um, that is certainly not my intent, and any discussion afterwards is is like is great in my opinion. So um, some of you have heard uh, me give this lesson, so I apologize for you having to hear the same stories over, but. Um, Summer of 2014, I think it was in between my third and fourth year of dental school, I believe. I think that's right. Yeah. In between my third and fourth year, my son Cohen was almost two years old, and I headed off into the Canadian wilderness uh, for about seven days. And I was gone about, about 10 days on a, on a week-long canoe adventure. So no cell phone service, no roads, no cabins. No civilization, no paramedics. That was that was kind of a big deal, you know. Nothing except for like mosquitoes, and and water and trees, and that is literally it. I spent a week in Canada, and I met one Canadian, and it was the it was the ranger that we met at the border who like let us come into the country, and that was that was she was like the only person we saw. So um, it was an amazing trip, um, and yes, I went into. I uh, went to Canada for a week with a two-month-old. I've got a great, great wife, or, or maybe I'm a horrible husband. I don't know. Um, but uh, she, she handled it well, and, uh, and I went with three of my best friends from dental school and, and just had an, an incredible time. But um, I say all that to say that, that Romans 9, 10, and 11, I think specifically 9, um, I believe they are the Canadian wilderness of, of, of Scripture. They are 
are beautiful, but a little bit treacherous, which, which Kyle alluded to. So um, at one point in the trip, I am, I'm carrying a canoe on my back, um, on my shoulders, and I've got like a probably 60, 50 pound bag, uh, like backpack on my back as well with a bunch of food in it. And um, I'm carrying that for literally like, like 300 yards. Um, or sorry, no, half a mile. It's like a half a mile portage that you have to carry every, all your gear for a half a mile from one lake to the next. So I, just that alone was, was crazy. But I get to the last 300 yards of, of the trail and like there's like a little bit of mud and like the further I go, the deeper the mud gets. And eventually like, I'm like knee deep in mud and I, I just like, I'm laying this canoe down, I'm dragging it. And I'm just like, why am I, why am I here? <laughs> why, why, why did I agree to do this? You know, and um, it was, it was a, it was one of the most difficult things. And there was no getting out of it. There's no like bailing. There's no calling anyone to come pick you up. Like, like you've got to go through this, this muck and this mud and get to the end. So um, I keep going. I'm dragging this canoe in the middle of nowhere. Uh, mosquitoes are like getting in my mouth uh, as I'm as I'm carrying. So I like, pull this head net down. I'm trying to like pull it down around my neck. Um, drenched in sweat. I hadn't changed my underwear in three days. Like that. That's that's a big deal, right? Oh, yeah. um, and I was I prepared prepared this this lesson a couple of uh, months back. But I, I remember thinking like that's how I felt preparing this lesson. Like that I'm in the middle of this wilderness and I, I'm in knee deep mud and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to do. So um, the good thing was I get to the end of this trail with muck and, you know, mosquitoes and just, you know, horribleness. And there's this beautiful Canadian lake with no one on it except for us, me and, and the three guys that I'm with. And, uh, and we just start like catching fish or drinking water straight from the lake because it's pure. Apparently, if you're in the middle of the lake in Canada, or in Canada, you can like dip your Nalgene down and just drink straight from the lake, which we did. And we didn't get Giardia, so that was good. Um, <laughs> they're like bald eagles flying above us. And I'm just filled with this incredible sense of peace, like just indescribable peace that like when I think back, I'm like, man, that was amazing. So just like think about that contrast, knee deep mud, like hundred pounds of, of gear and canoe, mosquitoes in the mouth, and then just total bliss and peace. And so I think about these three chapters of Romans, they've been debated, they've been argued, they've been the source of a lot of division. Um, because of that, churches have split, and entire denominations have started just from like this one chapter in the Bible, entire denominations have sprung up. Um, but even though there's a lot of confusion and maybe a lot of debate and division over, over these chapters, I also believe there is beauty to be seen and I think there is peace to be gained at the end of them. Um, no matter which side of the debate you come, you come down on, there's, there is, there's a truth to be pulled out of, out of the scripture that I think is, is beautiful and peaceful. So I'm not an expert on Romans. I have taken a three hour course on Romans. That's, that's the extent. And I've read Romans you know, a few times. Um, you know, that's, that's about it, you know. Um, but I'm going to teach tonight as best as I can uh, how I read the Scripture and then how I interpret other people's writings on, on the Scripture. So, okay, 
Before we get knee deep into that mud, um, let's just remember the context that Romans is being written in. So the Jews had been expelled from Rome. So all of the Jews had been, or most of the Jews had been kicked out of Rome and were now under a new emperor being allowed to, to come back into Rome. So they've been gone. And so any Christians that were in Rome were, were most likely not Jewish. And so now you have all these Jews coming back into Rome all of a sudden. And so the complexion of the church in Rome is, is changing. And so you have two very different groups. Um, you have one group, the Jews, who, who probably still held on uh, a little or a lot to this idea that you were somehow right with God because you followed the law. So if, you, if I can be a good person and just keep this law that God's given me, then, then I'll be okay and I'll be right with God. And then on the other hand, you had this group of former like heathen Gentiles. Uh, they were eating meat, sacrificed to idols. They were doing a lot of other stuff that was way worse than that, right? And they probably saw the law as somewhat of a burden. They, they, they saw it as like cumbersome. They, they looked at God's law and thought, well, we don't really need that. Like we kind of need to shake that off, honestly. That's, that's a burden. And so you see back in Romans 6, which who, who taught on Romans 6? So, you talk, so Kyle, I'm, I'm sure mentioned this, that Paul addresses this idea of, of cheap grace, that, that because you're saved by grace, you don't really have to follow the law. Like I'm saved by grace, so it's like a, like a do whatever I want card. Like I, I can do, like I can do whatever I want. I'm, I'm free to like do all the bad things I ever wanted to do because because God's got me. So so you got these two different groups, right? One that says we're saved because of this law, and then the other one says the law is cumbersome, it's burdensome. Uh, we need to get rid of the law. So S Paul's trying somehow to bring these two groups together to unify them under one message. There's one message that he's trying to bring them together under. And that's the point of chapter 9. So think about that. It's not, this isn't just about the Jews or just about the Gentiles, but Paul is trying to unify the church under one message. So we get to chapter 9 and listen to what he says. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So Paul is so smart, right? He's so smart. It's like he had help from the Holy Spirit or something, right? <laughs> He's so smart. Before he says what he wants to say, he implies it. Did y'all catch that there? What is he implying about the people of Israel? I kind of read through that quickly. They're not saved. They're not saved. He's implying that they're not saved because he says, I, I wish that I myself basically were lost so that they could be saved. So the implication there is that like some of them are not going to be saved. And so <clears throat> this would have been a total shock to a Jew of this time. Like this is like radical, like the fact that he would even, 
even hint at the fact that Jews, that any Jews would not be saved, this would have been like a, a, pretty, a pretty radical thing to say at the, at the time. And here's how I know it would have been radical, and here's how I know it would have been shocking. Because when people say things that, er that everyone basically already knows, they just kind of say them, and then what do they do? You just kind of move on, right? Like, no big deal. You say something that somebody already, already knows, and then, you, and then you move on. But when you say something shocking, you usually follow it up with, like, hold on, hold on, let me explain. And that's what Paul does for three chapters. He explains what he just implied. So he explains what he's implying here at the beginning of chapter 9, which is that Jews outside of Christ are lost. And again, this would not a, shocking isn't even the best word. Like, it, this would have been offensive. To a, to a Jew um, in Paul's time. And so the reason it would have been shocking and offensive is to the Jews is because they would have immediately thought that Paul was implying that God doesn't do what? He doesn't keep his word. They would have been like, well, they would have thought, they would have, it, would have, it would have been offensive to them personally, but it would have also been offensive because they would have thought that Paul was accusing God of being, of being a liar, someone who doesn't keep his promises. So have you guys ever been in the line at Kroger or whichever grocery store you like to shop at? Um, if, you're, if you're in school, maybe you're shopping at Aldi more often. We shop at Aldi, actually. You still, you'll still shop at Aldi after, after you get out of school. Um, but have you ever been in, the, in the, the line at the grocery store and somebody's trying to use the wrong coupon? Has anybody ever experienced that? Or an expired one. Yeah, or an expired one. Or just lots of coupons. Yeah, just lots of coupons. Like just, yeah, seriously. Um, they, they make an app for that now, apparently. But, um, and they're certain, like they're so sure that it's, it's the right coupon. I, you know, they've, they've waited all week for, for the Sunday paper. They've sharpened their, their scissors, right? <laughs> their, their, their scissors are nice and sharp. They didn't tear the coupon out. They, they carefully and they ritualistically, they cut it out, right, in a very pious manner. If you see where the, you see where the metaphor is going, they, they laid it at the altar of the cashier's conveyor belt as it, as it goes by on the conveyor belt, only to be told, we don't take this coupon. So what's the response? Like outrage. It's not pretty, right? Yeah, it's not pretty. People get furious. And I've seen some like pretty awkward moments. So, and I'm standing back here just like, you know, like, look, move this along. I'm tired of waiting in line, right? But they're, they're totally outraged. I mean, they, they budgeted for the use of this coupon, right? Like they planned for this coupon. Kroger promised they would accept this coupon, and now they get to the store and they don't have enough money and they can't eat and they end up starving to death, right? Isn't that how it usually goes? Not really, but you see where the metaphor is going, right? Now imagine if you budgeted, think about budgeting your entire life on this promise that because you're Jewish, you're automatically destined for eternity in heaven. Like you've budgeted every aspect of your life around this perceived promise because, right, God promised. And then Paul implies that there are a lot of Jews that will not spend eternity in heaven. All right? Think about the lady or the man that you're behind at the grocery store. That's, a, that's over a coupon. Think about how the Jews would have responded to this. This, 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 this outright rejection of what they perceive to be God's promise. Imagine the shock and even the anger that Jews in Rome 
would have felt in reading this. They, they would have immediately believed that Paul was accusing God of failing to keep his promises. That's what they would have done. And here's how we know that. In verse 6, Paul says, he always knows what they're going to say. He always comes back with, I know what you're thinking, and, he, and then he says it. He says, it is not as though God's word had failed. And here's, how, here's what he's saying. He's basically saying, like, it's not, God's, it's not that, that God didn't keep his promise. It's not that his word failed. And here's why. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So you got to know a little bit of Old Testament here to understand what Paul's talking about, which luckily for these Jews, they knew their Old Testament much better than we do. Um, but for those of us who maybe don't know our Old Testament as well, in essence, Paul saying, you read the coupon wrong, right? Maybe the date was expired or this coupon wasn't even for this item that you thought it was for. This is for a totally different brand, but you still want the coupon. Um, yes, he's saying, yes, God made a promise to Abraham and you are physical descendants of Abraham. This is all true. And God made a promise to Israel and you're physical descendants of Israel. But here's where you read the coupon wrong. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. He's saying God keeps his promises in spite of what your DNA says. They were thinking DNA, and God's thinking, no, promise, children of the promise. And to prove it, to prove Paul's point, he goes back, right back to the beginning of the promise to Abraham. Abraham's firstborn son, does anybody remember who, who he was? Ishmael. The firstborn is Ishmael. So like, the Jews better be careful, right, with this whole, like, descendants thing because, like, if, if things go according to, like, the way they're supposed to, like, the promise to Abraham goes through Ishmael, right, if that's the case. And Paul says, no, that, that's not the case. Abraham's firstborn son, Ishmael, doesn't inherit the promise, even though he, as the firstborn, he should have. Abraham's second son, Isaac, does. So why is this important? It's important because from the very beginning, physical lineage doesn't matter. God's promise matters. God's election matters. And then right after that, Paul says, it's the same with Jacob and Esau. The birthright was whose? If you remember your Old Testament. It was Esau's because Esau was the, the older brother, all right? And he had lots of back hair too, right? I don't know how, that's, but that, how that matters, but... He was the oldest. He red, had, red back hair. It was red back hair. That's right. Kyle, you probably have red back hair, don't you? Yeah, you probably do. Um, edit that out. Um, the, the, birth, the birthright was Esau's. He was the oldest. He had the right DNA and the right order of birth. He, he's who Isaac wanted to inherit the, the blessing, but he's not who God chose to inherit the blessing. God chose Jacob. So Paul goes on to say, he says, Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Again, 
Paul is screaming the point here. Physical lineage does not guarantee you the inheritance. So just because you're a Jew, that does not guarantee you this, this inheritance of eternal life. And this is, this is the part of, of, of Scripture where I think the debate heats up. Well, I don't think. This is where the debate heats up, right here. All right. So the Reformed Calvinists, whom I greatly respect, many of them, would say that this Scripture on Jacob and Esau is evidence that God, in His sovereignty, chooses beforehand to elect some of the individuals to salvation and to damn others to hell. Um, when I read this, and this is not just my opinion, but when I also read more scholarly people um, and how they read it, I believe that Paul is referring here not to individuals, to individual people, but to nations. To nations. And the reason I believe that is because that's the original context that, that Paul is quoting. So if you go back to the Old Testament and you go back to Malachi, God is talking about his love for Israel and his hatred for the Edomites. He's talking about Jacob as Israel and Esau as the Edomites. And God uses Jacob's name to, re to refer to an entire nation, and he does the same with Esau to refer to the Edomites. So there's not any evidence that, that God hated Esau, the individual, or, um, or that Esau served Jacob, right, the individual. If you, if you go back and read, it's actually the, the opposite, right? If we go back and read, there's more evidence to the contrary that that, that Esau was blessed by God. Like he, he received a ton of blessings from God. And also you see that Jacob called Esau his master. So you see like Jacob serving Esau. So in Malachi, the context is nations. And I believe that the context here uh, in Romans is, is nations as well. Let's hit these blanks real quick. So the first blank is choose, chose, or chose. Yeah, and neither did Esau, God chose Jacob. The next book is individuals. We would we would say that Paul is referring here not to individuals but to nations. So again, I I don't want to be divisive at all with this because again this is this is an issue to me that like I don't believe it's worth churches splitting and people disfellowshipping and it has been this has been an issue that that has divided the church for a long time hundreds of years, um, but. I personally don't believe that Paul is referring here to God choosing salvation for some and hell for others, individuals. In other words, I don't think the Bible teaches that God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hate this person and I'm going to love this person. I don't believe that um, because, he, because in his sovereignty, he, he must do that to, to remain sovereign. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. So... Kind of moving on, Paul has just told the Jews that their Jewishness has no bearing on their salvation. So like, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're saved. And then he does, again, what he always does. He poses the question that he knows they're already asking. He says, what then shall we say? So for a moment, just put yourself in the position of, of a first century Jew. Just like think of yourself as a first century Jew for a second. Imagine thinking your entire life that you are destined for heaven because you're a Jew and because God made a promise to the Jews. And then a guy named Paul comes in and says, no, no, that's, that's not right. Like imagine how you would be feeling at this moment. What then shall you say? 
what would what would you say next right what is the question that paul poses You'd say that's not fair. It's not fair, as a, which is another way of saying God's not just, right? Which is what Paul says. He says, he says what then shall, shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So you look back and you see how humans like have tried to, to meddle in God's plan. This is what we always do. But you see how, how humans have tried to meddle in God's plan. They tried to take control from God. They tried to be to be they try to be sovereign, you know, on the, on their own. Abraham, what does he do? God makes a promise to him about a baby, and and what does he do? Yeah, yeah, he like finds somebody to 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 sleep with to do it himself, right? He's gonna make it happen on his own. So he goes out and he's like, no, no, God, I'll, I'll take over. I know you made this promise, but I'm gonna make this happen. So he's meddling in God's, God's sovereignty. Um, Isaac uh, tries his hardest to pass the blessing on to Esau, even though Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. Um, and yet God doesn't choose the child that Abraham had outside of marriage with Hagar. He chooses Isaac instead. And God doesn't choose Esau, even though Esau is the firstborn, and even though that's who Isaac wanted. He chooses Jacob. And so, and even though they, they're flawed individuals, right? Like these, these aren't like good people, really. You know, you look back at Jacob, and he was, what, what, what does his name mean? Like deceitful or? Well, that technically means heel grabber, but it has a connotation that he's deceitful. That he's deceitful. So, yeah, so like that's in his name. Like he's not, you know, he's just not a not a great guy initially right and still and yet god chooses him so god was doing something this is why the old testament matters because you, you look back at it and god is doing something in the old testament that matters to us today he had a purpose and the jews that they would have heard paul here and they would have thought man god's not keeping his promise because they weren't all saved like every one of them wasn't saved that's what paul's t- saying they would have thought that god must be unjust this isn't right. So they would have shaken their fists. In fact, what did they do? Like they killed all the apostles over, over this kind of teaching, right? They were appalled by it. And so they, so they went and they said, well, we're just going to shut you up by killing you. But God was keeping his promise and he was doing it in a way that they would have never seen. So look at verse uh, 16 if you have uh, your Bible with you. He says, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So the Jews at this time, they would have thought that they were chosen by God and saved based on physical lineage, DNA. Remember, that's the entire point of these chapters. That's what they're thinking, and that's what Paul is addressing. This idea that the Jews thought they were saved simply because they're Jews. And Paul's point is simple. He says that God didn't elect you for salvation. That wasn't his purpose in electing you. That's not what he was doing when he delivered you from Egypt. So you look back to, 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 to the story of Moses. That's not what he was doing then. He was electing you for a purpose of service. He was electing you for service. He blessed you for a purpose. And he's saying, just like he hardened Pharaoh for, for a purpose. When I, when I look back at that story, I always like struggle with that of like how, like it sounds like God is like, like 
I don't, I'm just going to use you, Pharaoh, as my, as my object of wrath, and there's nothing you can do about it. I've created you essentially just to destroy you. And I don't think that's what the Bible is teaching here. Just like he hardened, he, he, I believe that he hardened Pharaoh for a purpose. And if you look back at the Old Testament and, and you see that now this entire thing, the entire Old Testament is pointing to one thing, it's pointing to one purpose, which is that, that God's name will be proclaimed all over the earth. And that's what, that's what it was in Egypt and that's what it is now too. So again, Paul knows exactly where their minds are going and he knows what their next question will be and listen to what he says he says one of you will say to me i love how he just keeps speaking for them he just keeps posing their questions their next their next question or the next objection he says one of you will say to me then why does god still blame us and that is the question that i would ask and that's the question i do ask when i've read this in the past and thought how could you possibly be mad and angry at pharaoh if you forced him to like think and act a certain way then how could you still hold him accountable? And that's what Paul said. That's, that's the question Paul's asking here. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for, for who is able to resist his will? Paul says, but who are you, O human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to, to make the, the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? So this scripture right here is often used to make the point that God... God chooses hell for some people before they're ever born for the purpose of displaying his wrath. Like God has this wrath that he's just got to get out. Like he's just got to show it. And so he, he creates people for this sole purpose of like, have many of you been to, uh, to Italy and seen like the frescoes on the wall? Like, the, like there's like God's like dangling people over the, over the flames and like the flames are like licking their, their, their bare skin. Like, like, I think that, that some people make the point that that's, that's kind of what God's saying here. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create you so that I can destroy you and, and that, so other people can see it and see, and see my wrath and see my glory. And so that's not what I read here. I believe that Paul is referring here to, to the choosing of people and specifically a group of people, the Jews, for service and for a purpose, not for salvation. The choice here is, is that God is saying, I'm gonna choose you and I'm electing you for a, for, for a service. I want you to do something for me. Not I'm choosing you just so that I can either save you or destroy you. Do you, under, do you under, uh, understand the distinction there? God's choosing them for a service and for a purpose, not as individuals just to destroy or save. And one of the reasons I believe that is because God is what does it say that he is with his objects of wrath? If you go back and read that, does he, did anybody catch that? He's patient with them, right? So 
I recently sawed my yard. It looks really, really good. It looks so good. I'm so happy about it. Um, I have a mole problem right now, so that's that's really it's really rough. Yeah, I've killed two so far. Hopefully, none of you are you know. Uh, hopefully, you're all okay with that. Um, they're the worst. The moles are. Um, but I sawed my yard, and before you put new sod down, you're supposed to kill all of the existing grass. Like you want to get rid of every weed, every blade of grass, no matter what's there, you just kill it all. So. I bought a sprayer, I bought, I bought some Roundup, and I just sprayed my entire lawn with, with this Roundup. Um, and then I waited, patiently. I just patiently waited for this grass to die, right? And that's what I was doing. I wasn't hoping that the grass would, would sprout up and be beautiful and, and live forever in eternity, right? Like, I wanted the grass to die. I patiently waited for the grass to die. I hate Bermuda grass. I really love zoysia. Such a nice, nice, beautiful grass. Um, and I wanted the Bermuda to die so that the zoysia could, could live. The Bermuda had, had no chance when it, when it met my wrath. I mean, I, I covered it, right? Um, I covered it in Roundup, which apparently, according to the state of California, causes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I don't know if you guys saw this recently, so um, don't spray Roundup. It's, it's not good for you. Um, but I sprayed this death poison, right? And then I patiently waited. I was just patient. So is that the kind of patience that God is exhibiting? Is that what Paul's talking about with his objects of wrath? He's just patiently waiting for them to die. Or is he patiently waiting for something else? Patiently waiting for them to live. I believe that God, and this is what the Bible teaches, that God desires that all people be saved. So these objects of wrath that he's patient with, he's, he's patiently waiting for them to, to choose to put their faith in him. He's not... He's not creating these individuals and choosing hell for them. I, I don't believe. But when people reject him, after he's been patient with them, he, he uses them for his preordained worship, which is not some sinister plot to control people. What God does is not unjust. It's not unjust. It may be hard for us to hear that story of Pharaoh, and we may be like, man, that's, that sounds hard. But, but when we look back to the story of Pharaoh, we see God being patient with Pharaoh, like giving him an opportunity after, op after opportunity after opportunity. And then at, at the point that, that Pharaoh's basically like, no, I'm, I'm going to completely reject you. God's like, okay, well, I, I'm going to use you. There's going to be some good that's going to come out of this. I'm going to bring some good out of, out of this evil. God's purposes always lead to life. They don't lead to death. God's purposes lead to life, abundant life. That's for everybody, for, for Jews, for Gentiles, for rich, for poor, for addicts, for, for people who are sober, for people who are gay, for people who are straight. God wants all people to know him, everyone to know him. And specifically, he wants all people to know Jesus, every person on the face of the planet. He's, he's reaching out all day long, holding out his hands, wanting people to know him. And he wants people to know about this blood that cleanses people from their sins. And I think Paul brings up how God uses Pharaoh as an object of wrath for a reason. God, he's been patient with Israel. So go back to Romans, all these Jews coming back into town, 
into the city of Rome, God's been patient with Israel. Like you go back and read the Old Testament and it's like, it's exhausting, right? God's been patient with them. And in chapter 10, uh, Paul quotes God from Isaiah. He says, all day long I've held out my hands to an obstinate people saying, here am I, here am I. So like, this isn't this picture of a God holding people over the flames and enjoying displaying his wrath. Like that's not who God is. God is this God who reaches out his hands all day long to people patiently waiting, like straining. It's uh, the Sistine Chapel, straining. And, and, and there man is with his, he's reclined and you know, he, he just has to lift his hand up and God's the one who's straining, reaching out for us. This is who God is. That's his character, that's his nature. And the reason Paul brings it up is because that's the position that it brings up Pharaoh is because that's the position that most Jews find themselves in. Most Jews find themselves in this position of, of being under God's wrath. God's been patient with them and they've totally rejected, rejected God, just like Pharaoh. So if you look over at chapter 9, verse 25, um, it says this about the Gentiles, God says this I will call them my people who are not my people. This is beautiful. This is, this is the moment at the end of, so this has been a mucky road, right? This is hard. This is hard stuff to teach and, and, and hard stuff to like follow along with. But this is the beauty. This is like the moment at the lake at where, you know, after you get through the mosquitoes and, you know, and all the mud. About the Gentiles, God says this, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us, had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But, by the, pe but, by, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness ha have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as, as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So if you look, again, just like we're, we're through the, the, the forest and we're through the muck and you're out on the lake and you look back and you see that all of Romans, and in fact, the entire Bible is pointing to this one truth. If we put our faith in anything except for the blood of Jesus, like we are doomed. We don't have any hope. But because of that blood that, that does cover us, we can say it's finished. It's done. Like I don't have to. I don't have to like work to be a good person and hope that God will be happy with me. Um, even though I still struggle with that, right? I still struggle with like trying to perform for God in, in hopes that I can earn His favor. But, but Paul is saying because of the blood of Jesus, we can look back and we, say, we can say it's done. So on one hand, we don't have any reason to be arrogant 
Like I don't have any reason to, to look at my good works and say, man, I'm a really good person. I've done all this for God. I'm awesome. I don't have any reason to be arrogant, but I have every reason to be confident. I know that I'm saved. So like this is like a it kills two birds with one stone. If you're if you're an arrogant person who thinks you're better and you're you're great and that God loves you because of how great you are, like this this shuts that down because you don't have any reason to be arrogant. But if you're a person who struggles with like self-worth and feeling valuable and feeling loved, like it shuts that down too. Because God says, like I have chosen you just because you put your faith in the blood of my son Jesus. So we've trudged through the knee-deep mud. This is the moment where we see the beauty and the peace. God made a promise to Abraham that he would be a great nation, all the way back at the beginning, and that, and that his people would be God's people and that the whole world would be, would be blessed through him. And God continued that promise through Jacob with Israel. And Paul's whole point in these three chapters is this, that God keeps his promises. He does, he's, he's not unjust. He keeps his promises. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Jesus, he is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. And not, just, and not just that Jesus came and he was a good teacher, and he was a good person, he showed us how to, how to be loving and how to serve people, he was, he was a philanthropist, but that Jesus takes away our sins. And the reason it's a blessing to the whole world is because everybody sins. Like everybody has sin in their life, everybody messes up, everybody does things that are wrong. Like nobody is exempt from that, right? And everybody needs their sins to be taken away. Everybody needs grace. Everybody. No one's exempt. And that's what Jesus provides. And Paul says that when we put our faith in Jesus, we're grafted into that family of Israel. So that family that we weren't a part of, that we were excluded from, that was kind of like a members-only thing that we weren't, we could never be a part of because of Jesus, like we are accepted in. And God brings us in and grafts us into that family, into his family. Not because of our DNA, not because we worked really hard, not because we're, we're good little Christians, right? But because of one thing, we put faith in the saving power of Jesus' blood. And that's it. And that's beautiful. All right. Thank you, Grant, for doing a wonderful job. This is a tough topic, and you may ha you know, find yourself out there listening to this and disagreeing. We did have a time, maybe 15, 20 minutes of discussion around this, and kind of had to cut it off just because it was getting late, but there's a lot more that could be had. And you know, if you're coming at this, I guess I would say, as we sort of said at the very beginning, and, and maybe even throughout, is... This is just not a hill that I'm willing to die on. And I, I would say I accept that very well, you know, I could be wrong about this. And I think Grant would say the same thing. I don't know that that changes dramatically the way in which I take the mission of the New Testament and Jesus' mission to us to go out into the world and to preach and to teach and to make disciples. I, I don't think it changes that. Uh, the theology of this is important. Um, and I think there's certain things that we must agree on as it pertains to this conversation. And yet some of it, I think it's like C.S. Lewis describes a great hall with many rooms. 
Um, but those rooms are all connected, and so we have different denominations, and those are the different rooms of this great hall. Uh, but God lives in that entire house, and I think it's helpful to spend as much time as possible in the great hall with different denominations, having conversations about the things that we agree about. So maybe we go off into our little rooms, and I think that's okay, as long as we come out now and again. Um, and as long as we accept that we are all under the same roof. And I think that's the point of that analogy, and hopefully that lands. So we appreciate you for listening and uh, for being out there. Of course, if you're a medical dental student, and it's a Monday night. Come out to Germantown, spend some time with us. 6.30 to around 8, we'll uh, have dessert, coffee, and occasionally dinner, and we'll study something that is of, of great importance. And uh, hopefully you've enjoyed these. And reach out to us sometime. You can find me, Kyle Fagala, on Facebook. And you can reach out and ask any questions you'd like. And hope you're having a wonderful day. And I hope you have an even better week. And we will see you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye.